I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, an Olympic opening ceremony with no one there, the Japanese Olympics. Darren Hinch, welcome to That's Life. Mr. Tardio, hello. The Japanese Olympics. I know they keep doing. They keep saying they will go ahead, and I presume they will in some manner or form. Um, I know they announced there'd be no cheering and no applause or whatever. But the <laughs> Japanese, I think, as, as a nation, have always been fairly full of decorum, so I don't think that'll worry them too much. Um, but uh, it, it's going to be a tough one because they may have to perform without any crowds at all. I mean, they've banned people going from, coming from overseas. So, I mean, parents of Australian uh, athletes can't go and watch their son or daughter uh, perform at the Olympics. That can't happen. I don't know. It, it, it wouldn't surprise me if they even had to cancel it at the last minute. What's the opening ceremony going to be like if they have to do it without a crowd? Yeah. I, I mean, the whole point of having the entertainment yeah. is you've got the well, crowd. Imagine, yeah, well, Sydney 2000, what an amazing thing that was. But they'll have to – I mean, they are pulling back on a lot of stuff. But, I mean, t- teams are already there. So um, perhaps it, it will go ahead under some manner or form. Have you been to an Olympic Games? I've been to uh, Commonwealth Games. I went to – I covered the Commonwealth Games in Kingston, Jamaica. Never been to the Olympics. Uh, I did get – I was on 3AW doing – Eight till midnight during the Sydney 2000 Olympics. I, I remember that night. And, uh, I was there too. Yeah, and I actually um, wasn't too. It wasn't that brilliant, but I managed to pick who would carry the, the who would light the torch. And I said it'll be it'll be it'll be Kathy Freeman. Well, and the reason why is that she would put out an excuse as to why she hadn't carried the torch earlier, and said, "Oh, she's training or something." And I thought. It just doesn't quite ring true. I, thought, I bet they're holding her back to light the torch, and and she did. And then, of course, it didn't light. Remember, it was going, it was going up as a big because Richard Werrett, who's a friend of mine, and Jackie well, Wheeler. There, there was this sort of like yeah, so it was meant to go up. Up was going to. It was just stuck. It, it, it worked perfectly in rehearsals the day before. But I know I did talk to Richard after this, the theatrical director who was involved in the games. It was, I think it was David Atkins. But I said, "How'd you feel?" He said, "We were sitting there shitting ourselves." He said, "Because <laughs> the whole world's watching, and it's meant to go up." And she puts it, in, she puts the torch here, and then it automatically goes up to the top of the tower and lights the other torch, and it just froze. And she was standing, she's there, standing there, holding the torch, frozen, frozen waiting it, for this thing. And to also happen. in water, and she's standing in water, so people think she's going to get pneumonia, won't be able to run. <laughs> it was a, a, a terrible, and then suddenly it just it moved and went and did it. So did he say what what they would have done had it not done what it was? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think they had it. But they said, we rehearsed it the day before and it worked perfectly, but as often happens. Oh, you know. I remember reading Ron Clark, because some people might be old enough, yeah. I, I don't remember when it happened, but uh, when he lit the, the flames here in uh, Melbourne and uh, the flame was to go right through the Olympic. The whole idea is that the fire burns right through the Olympic. The fl- flame went out. It came yeah. out, yeah. It <laughs> went out at one stage. They didn't tell anybody. They snuck <laughs> back in and relit it. And he actually burned his arm Lighting that torch in '56. Yes, know. that's right. Do you know that was I? Um, Brian Dixon was a, was a minister for sport, I think, in Victoria at the time when they were trying to get the 1988 Olympics for Melbourne, and I campaigned against it 
on 3AW. And Dixon said to me one day, he said, you destroyed that. He said, you just came out. So, because I said, we haven't paid off the 56 Olympics yet, <laughs> which was true, but it was quite a good move because cause the, um, the, the the cost of the loan was so small, it didn't matter. I mean, but it was a very good argument to say, we haven't paid off the 1956 ones, 56 ones. And, if, and you said, and go out and look at Homebush. That was the Olympic Village, which had become a slum, you know. So every um, every well, well, a lot of the Olympic venues become slums. Mm. Uh, I went to Barcelona uh, oh, yeah, a couple of, couple of years ago and went up to the Olympic area where uh, they had the Olympics there. Remember the swimming pool where they did the diving? Oh, yeah, yeah. And you had the, bu- the, the city of Barcelona below because the diving was up high. Do you remember that? Um, yeah, I, I didn't watch the Olympics that year. I boycotted them. Because uh, I went on Channel 7, I was doing the Hinch program, and I said, I don't believe in bullfighting. And uh, so I boycotted <laughs> the games because of the Spanish bullfighters. Well, there's a lot of uh, politics involved in the Olympics. Politics in who the cities that, that get the Olympics. Well, look, look, at, corruption. When, look at when Atlanta got it, and it was almost, they called it the Coca-Cola Olympics. because, And then they shut down, I remember, I'm thinking I'm right in saying this, they shut down the Olympic Village before the Paralympics were on, and uh, in Atlanta, in Atlanta, it, uh, yeah, uh, I guess because Coca Cola said, "Well, we're sponsoring this; we're only paying for so much." Well, M- Melbourne's tried a number of times to uh, to get the Olympics, um, and then Sydney got them in the year two thousand. Do you think they were a good thing for Sydney? Oh, they were. They were fantastic for Sydney. Yeah, they're certainly a good thing for um, what's her name, um, Prince what's it, Margaret, the, the new princess in. Uh, in, uh, in, in oh Europe. yeah, she met her husband. Well, she, she met uh, she, Princess she, Mary. Princess Mary. She she was a Tasmanian real estate agent, and Princess Mary met her husband to be uh, at a appropriately named bar called the Slip Inn in Sydney, <laughs> and something happened, and the next thing she's 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 a Princess Mary. She's so. living the high life in uh, Denmark. So she became Princess Mary. Um, but he but he apparently had one of the first we'd ever seen those black or gold um, American Express cards, which I think impressed a lot of people. So there we are. Yeah. I, uh, I went to the 1988 Olympic Games. Uh, I was on the finish line when Ben oh. Johnson won the 100 metres. Oh. I always remember 9.79 seconds. It drug assisted or not, it was actually quite remarkable to see a human being run 100 metres yeah. in that time. And if you remember, he, he raised his right arm, looked to his left, and Carl Lewis was second, and Linford Christie was uh, was third. Quite, quite, uh, quite amazing being at an Olympic uh, Games. Yeah, I imagine it would be, yeah. Because the whole world is watching. I stayed in the press village, and I remember going to uh, a bar. There was a bar that it, all the journos used to go to, and you'd sit down and have something yeah. to eat, and next to you was a columnist who wrote for a Japanese newspaper and then sitting across was an Israeli journalist writing for an Israeli newspaper. Yeah, yeah. And every day you'd meet someone from different parts of the world. South, the South Americans used to go into a corner and someone had a guitar <laughs> and they'd, they'd sing South American songs. Well, I tell you, play, uh, the Commonwealth Games uh, sounded good. It wasn't, wasn't that glorious. I mean, we survived on uh, curried goat. I remember in Kingston, Jamaica, and because I was working for United Press International, an international news agency, you had to file stories all around the bloody clock for s- suddenly some um, Indian 
ping pong team needed their, their story covered, you know. And so you're writing. They, they have some strange sports in the Commonwealth yeah, Games. Well, yeah. uh, what, there was a guy uh, from Shepparton who uh, uh, the shuttlecock uh, game. Did uh, they have shuttlecock? Badminton. Badminton. Oh, yeah. yeah, badminton's in. We the, um, but so so you'd be waiting for your story to go through this interminable telex machine has been punching out around the world and you'd be suddenly you'd be sleeping you'd go and grab an hour's sleep on some Pakistani wrestler's gym mat you know it was well Ben Johnson came into 3AW um, a couple of years ago and uh, I, I went up to talk to him and I had my photograph taken with him oh. and uh, uh, I remember vividly it was uh, Melbourne was playing Hawthorne I think in the grand final here on that particular day it was a Saturday and that's when Melbourne got thumped. Thrashed. Yeah. Thrashed. And that we was were, the day I remember saying, the day the boys came to play the men. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were getting scores. We were in the Olympic Stadium in uh, Seoul, South Korea. Yeah. And then uh, Johnson won the race. And then uh, beside the Olympic Stadium was this huge tent where all the athletes, the big athletes, went to do their media conferences. Oh, okay, yeah. And I remember I was right up the front uh, the desk was here and um, Ben Johnson was supposed to come in because he won the gold medal but he, he um, Carl Lewis came in first and uh, there was talk that oh, Johnson couldn't produce a urine sample and we'd all sort of thought that he was on drugs before it even came out and we were joking really? oh, he, he didn't want to provide a urine sample because he'd been taking drugs then Linford Christie came out and I left early so I didn't see Ben Johnson came out that was on the Saturday on the Tuesday morning I got a phone call from Melbourne here saying Ben Johnson has been kicked out of the Olympic Games because he tested positive to stenozolol and he's at Kimpo Airport and he's about to leave and that was like the biggest day yeah. of, of sporting history, uh, well, in sport really, uh, up until that point. He was the first big athlete that, yeah. to be caught drug cheating. That's right. And, and, and then years later it came out that everybody in that race, all the eight runners in that race, had been on drugs. Is that right? A bit like the Tour de France. Yeah. <laughs> Goodness Where me. does sport go with drugs, Darren? You hope you can clean it up, but you can't. I mean, you saw how what Armstrong did in, in the Tour de France for so many years. You either say you can use any drugs you like, which I don't agree with. Well, no, well that, that, then, then it's not a sport Then anymore. it's not sport. Um, then it's biomechanics. Now, a, a young uh, American sprinter, female, whom I can't, whose name I can't remember, uh, she just got suspended for a month because she tested positive to uh, marijuana, which is banned. And uh, she... Um, uh, she said she only started taking marijuana when a journo told her that her father had died. So, so <laughs> on, on an interview, and so she uh, and she was a hundred meter hundred meter sprinter, and she now she won't make it to hundred meters, even though she's the American champion. She may the month may run out in time for the relay, as I understand it. So she may get to run at some stage. Shikari Richardson. Darren, another topic I wanted to talk to you about was uh, the goings-on in some of the offices in the uh, Parliament of Victoria. Apparently, uh, uh, sex has been happening up there. Dustin Hulse, the Ringwood MP, who no one has ever heard of, he's a Labor MP. Uh, we haven't heard him speak about this, actually. 
James Newbury, the Brighton MP at some parliamentary inquiry, uh, named him under parliamentary privilege. There had been a story going around. Yeah, it was true. An MP had had sex on his desk or something, was it? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, Fiona Patton came out the next day after this Dustin Hulse was named and said, oh, well, I got so excited. Uh, she, she, she alluded to the fact that she had also had sex in her parliamentary office. What do you think about? Oh, it's mad. I mean, you know, we had we saw the grubbiness in Canberra with uh, some guy masturbating on his on his boss's female boss's desk. Uh, it's, it's mad. I, I can't think. Well, having been in Canberra, I can't think less um, uh, less enticing and romantic than being in your bloody office. Uh, uh, but then you had um, John Brown's wife. Remember they. Uh, she boasted that had sex. She was tourism minister. She had sex on the on the Jan, had sex on the desk, and she left her knickers in his ashtray, and she made a big, big laugh about it. That was thirty years ago, though. What do you think Victorian voters would think about these MPs? That, that thing's pretty grubby. I mean, you know, you're being paid a lot of money to represent represent your state, to represent you know a state of six million, six million three hundred thousand people. So Is it almost like an up you at the voters? You know, saying look, uh, look. no, I don't think so. I look, I see. It's, I know I've told the story before about Peacock, Andrew Peacock and Kissinger supposedly in a bar together. It's hypothetical. And a pretty young girl comes up to them and starts flirting with them and when she leaves, um, Peacock preens and says to Kissinger, ah, look at that, the power of sex. And Kissinger says, no, the sex of power. <laughs> And that possibly has something to do with what was going on in Victoria. Well, this guy, Hulse, hasn't been penalised in uh, any way. I guess he's been penalised in a way that he's been named and shamed. Um, but uh, should the Labor Party be doing something well, about I mean, this? Um, what proof do they have? Is just is he, he hasn't actually described what happened, has uh, he, or uh, who think, it was? or Well, no. Uh, uh, I mean, I, if it was a staffer, that would go against... Malcolm Turnbull's no bonking rules, you know. So well, does know. it matter if it's a staffer? I mean, I would well, have thought, if, if, you I, know... Yeah, they're different things. I mean, if, if consenting adults is one thing, it's still bad, but it's not as bad as if a, an intern has been seduced by, well, by an, an older politician. Yeah, but I, I would have thought there's a line to be drawn and the line is, you know, it's Parliament. You, you, go, you go there to um, represent the interests of your electorate. In this case, it's the people of uh, Ringwood. Uh, you don't have sex with anybody in the office. I, I, I agree with that. I'm trying to say it'd be worse, though, if it was an employee or if it was an intern, etc., etc. It's bad. You, you, you have to have respect for the office, and you should. I mean, you, you, you're very lucky, very honoured to be there. I mean, I was... I told you before, I've, I've carried that little medal of mine around in my pocket all the time I was a senator because... I was one of only 700 people who'd ever been elected senator in Australia. And that's about the same number as worn the baggy green for cricket. Um, I, I was disgusted by what uh, Fiona Patton said because it's like she made light of the Would well, she sort of allude to the fact that she had too? Well, well, she said, when I was elected, I was so excited I could have, I may have engaged in something oh, well, like I, that. I, when she changed her name, well, she was the sex party. Uh, when she changed her name to the reason party, I nicknamed it the treason party, <laughs> which didn't go down well with Miss Patton. So. Talking about sex in Parliament, Barnaby Joyce mm. is back. 
Uh, Barnyard Barnaby. I called him Barnyard Barnaby in my, my maiden speech and I got hauled up by the President of the Senate next day for unparliamentary uh, <laughs> behaviour. What happens when that happens? Uh, what does he ring you up and say? No, he called one of my staff and uh, one of my staff went to saw him and said, well, Mr Hinch, Senator Hinch. Uh, why, why wouldn't he do it on the day, you know, like you when you met uh, Well, he didn't. No, don't interrupt your maiden speech, I think. Well, oh. he did it on the night, yeah, but he talked to one of my staffers on the, on the night. Right. Uh, and I actually had to go and apologise to Barnaby uh, in his office, which is a fairly short and curt sort of little conversation. What's he like as a bloke? I don't know. I, I really don't know him. I met him then. I mean, I, I love the... When he's in the middle of all the stuff that we never heard of until we, I saw the picture on the front page of the Telegraph of him leering at his, uh, we didn't know, girlfriend's short skirt and she's playing with her hair at the same time and he's, he's got the look of an absolute perv on his face, you know. <laughs> um, but I And I, I did like it when they... Because he always... When he got angry, they called him beetroot because he he'd go so red. Well, I think he goes red anyway. Yeah, I mean, whether he's so, angry so or after not. After that story came out, they called him the beetrooter, <laughs> <laughs> and that was in Canberra. Suddenly, Barnaby, <laughs> Barnaby the beetrooter. You know, um, it must be tough. I mean, people say, "Well, it's his private life." And she said, "Well, it's not really because you make it your your cause." He he was anti. Um, 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 the, 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 the the sex um, sex marriage laws, the new laws, right? Um, homosexual um, marriage. Gay he marriage, was, right, yeah. He, gay marriage. He was so opposed to that. And he came out and said, I want... And he made speeches say, I want my daughters to grow up and have a heterosexual... I'm paraphrasing. A heterosexual marriage like I've got, you know. Well, what we didn't know is that he, he, his heterosexual marriage was meant he could go out and, and bonk whom he liked. Um, and it's still against Barnaby still, um, and his party didn't put him back in. Uh, there's still unanswered questions about that woman from the Federa Farmers Federation in WA whom the Liberal Party named, or Nationals named, she didn't want a name out there. Uh, that has never been resolved. And now to add insult to injury to a lot of people, and especially because of what we've seen in the last few months about you know, sex in Canberra and the Me Too movement, is that ScoMo has appointed him to this new you know, Women's Rights Committee which is just madness. I mean, here's a man who probably has a, probably the worst reputation of anybody in Canberra is suddenly on this new new committee that was set up by ScoMo to um, supposedly protect, investigate and protect women's rights in Canberra. Well, the National Party is like another beast, though. Do you think it's a positive for the National Party? Because uh, it was obvious in, in, Michael in, in, McCormack wasn't really cutting through. No, he wasn't. And, and, OK, in one way, yes, it is, because Barnaby Joyce will be seen and will be heard and will push the Nationals' agenda. Uh, he will try and pull the, 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 the Liberal Party and the Liberal government and the coalition further to the right. I mean, he's made his views known about climate change uh, and so that part of it, some conservatives will think it's a great idea that the Joyce is back there. It, it will be a problem for, for Morrison because because uh, Joyce will not be as compliant as I as don't his think the two get on. I, I've heard well, there's a quote from Joyce saying, "You don't have to be friends." Yes, that's what I was going to say. I've yeah, seen don't have that, to be friends. You know, uh, I mean, and he showed how when when I mentioned before when Turnbull brought in the anti-bonking rule. Barnaby went off his face about that, you know. Uh, and then we didn't know that, that his partner was moved into 
um, Canavan's office. I mean, they moved them around, you know, and so on, on very good wages. It's just that part of it is, is disgraceful. You know, it is disgraceful. Well, it sort of happens in a lot of areas, doesn't it? I mean, I've been reading this book that Mick Warner wrote about the uh, AFL oh, yeah. here in Victoria, and I notice you've got a copy of that yeah. book yourself. Uh, uh, when you when you read that, there, and I'd like to talk to you uh, about that because mm-hmm. that's sort of what happens within the uh, AFL. People get jobs not because of merit, but uh, because they know somebody, and uh, mm. it's an incestuous well, you had those two, world. Two senior people who are not dismissed eventually because they were both having having affairs. Something I've remembered, I, I want to tell you, it's apropos of absolutely nothing here, but it's a, a radio story that I thought about the other day. Um, Madonna was in the news for some reason, okay? Now, and it got me thinking years and years ago, uh, in the early 1980s, I suppose, uh, my team, me and Darren James, a sound man, and Paul Barber, my producer, went to New York to broadcast from New York. And while we were there, through contacts here, like Mike Gadinsky and, and Ray Evans, we got given tickets to Madonna's concert at Madison Square Garden. And that was around the time of Like a Virgin was a huge She hit. was big. She wasn't was she? huge. Yeah. So suddenly we were invited, got these tickets to go into Madison Square Garden. And it shows you the old thing about walk with attitude or just if you look like you know what you're doing, you'll get away with it. Darren James had this huge Nagra tape recorder, right? The size of a small suitcase. He walks into they're checking people's, this is before mobile phones much, they were checking people's baggage and stuff. For, he walks in with this Nagra under his, in his hand. We go down, our tickets are in the VIP section. The first person I see running around downstairs in a cowboy hat is Molly Meldrum. <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, Madonna came out and gave an absolute knockout concert. Darren sits there with his Nagra, with his earphones on, and a microphone in front of him, and we recorded her new hit song, and we played it down the line on 3AW next morning. I mean, forget about piracy or anything like that. You know, we totally illegally recorded this, this Madonna song, and nobody came near us because we looked like we knew what we were doing. <laughs> you, were in, you were VIPs VIP, in the VIP so we must, area. It must be part of the deal. You know, but there we go. So, and next day after we played it down the line, somebody said, somebody said I think maybe Gadinsky said, you weren't meant to do that. Well, it didn't cross my mind. I thought, oh, well, we're here, you know, it's a public thing and we're watching it. And we just got good recording of it too. It was lovely. The old, the old Darren James, he, he's had a pretty good life out there, hasn't he? Well, he's in fairness himself to, to your yeah. coattails. Well, he he's the gone thing, everywhere. Okay, in fairness to, to Darren, and, uh, you know, he's very successful now on weekends on 3AW. Um, on his very first trip overseas with me, Paul Barber, my producer, came to me and said, oh, Darren James wants to come. And I said, "It's not a bloody holiday. We're going with we're going to India uh, with um, you know with um, with save the children or you know or something like that." And to his credit, Darren said, "I'll take vacation and I'll pay my own trip because I just want to see how you work." Now, he would only be about nineteen then, and 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 his mother hated me because she thinks I influenced him his bad behaviour. But but he and from there. Went to India, China, London, you know, Beijing, 
LA, everywhere. Yeah. And these are times when uh, people didn't travel that easily. I mean, no. And China. I mean, I was reading, they're doing this thing in the paper about the uh, the first, because it's 50 years since Gough Whitlam first yes, went to was, uh, yeah. China. So China was this, this oh, closed, yeah. mysterious it was The bamboo country. curtain it was impenetrable. You couldn't go there. Well, people laughed at me and said, oh, Darren, you'll never get there, you know. And even my, our staff, uh, Bob Quinn, who worked for 3AW, was just, he was one of the managers sort of laughed and said, oh, it's, it's a joke, you won't get it. But I went to Canberra and got visas and, and then we get to China and we brought, did the first ever live broadcast in the world from Beijing. You do that from a, a radio station here yeah, in yeah. China. From, a, from, you, a, uh... from Radio Beijing, which is a huge building, massive building, and the studio, which was wood-panelled, would have been... Bigger than my apartment, you know, um, and I recall the story. We, I mean, we've got, we get there, and uh, it's all working well. And we get to the door, and the studio door is locked. And because of the time difference, it's the middle of the night, and it's about four a.m. in China or something. And I said to Darren, "You sort it out. I'm gonna have a sleep for an hour. I sat on the floor and had a sleep for an hour. I said, and if it isn't fixed by the time I wake up, I'll kick the bloody door in.'" <laughs> and by the time I woke up, they'd managed to get a key, and he, he managed to hook his equipment up to to theirs, and we broadcast live. And the Chinese said, "How do you how do you know how to, to ask people quick?" Because he had talkback, and they were puzzled. What they meant was, "How do you know what the answers are meant to be?" Yeah, I mean, if people really don't ask you questions because they have control. They knew that if they tried that in Beijing, they'd end up in jail. You reckon they were listening to what you guys oh, yeah, were doing, they. watching? Oh, everything. I mean, whenever doing. we tried to go anywhere, walk outside, your minders were there with, alongside you, and you had the same driver for days and days. And uh, and then they, um, we did a second broadcast um, from Shanghai. So it, it, it was fantastic to do it because it was just. And I, I won the. Uh, Oh, it's a big, I think it might be there or not, maybe somewhere. The International Radio Award, it must be in storage. The International Radio Award in New York for the best broadcast of that year. Excellent. Well, Darren, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this morning and uh, we will catch up next week. We will indeed.